This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for real life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, come and join us at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. Thank you and happy listening. So let me make a few preliminary remarks. It's very good to see quite a lot of people turning up. You know that I and some of my colleagues in uh, the Majumaloka community and some of the other communities connected with Majumaloka have been exploring the idea of what I'm thinking of as an urban vihara. Uh, it's a very vague idea, and uh, I'm not sure whether anybody's going to buy it. But anyway, I'm going to explore it and see what happens. And that is that a collection of people uh, around some communities who come together to meditate and to listen to and discuss the Dharma um, without any other project in mind and who try between them to develop a, a, a strong atmosphere of Dharma practice. And I'm interested in this as a sort of alternative approach to a centre rather than thinking in terms of a, a centre as a, uh, uh, a sort of blank space uh, at which activities are put on, thinking more in terms of a, a collection of people who are practising together, especially practising meditation together, but also listening to and studying the Dharma. So I see this as a contribution to that uh, exploration to see whether anything does come of it, whether enough of us sort of begin to cohere um, across our different communities and non-communities um, for it to really constitute something in itself. I think that's probably sufficiently vague for me to leave it and talk about something else. Uh, I wanted to explore, as a contribution to that, some... Uh, Dharma themes and texts that have been especially important and interesting to me. And if this works and if it's what people want, I'm quite happy to go on doing it and take up a number of texts and a number of themes over the, the, the year and years. Um, of course, if nobody's here, well, it'll stop. But if people keep coming, then I will continue to do it. Uh, I prefer to do it in sequences rather than, you know, one night a week or whatever. I prefer just to spend time over a number of days just exploring deeply a particular text. So I realise it's not going to suit everybody and if you can't come every night, that's okay. It's uh, a free vihara. Sarah and I decided that if this urban vihara idea comes about, its membership is everybody who turns up, if you see what I mean. Um... But I wanted to start with this text because uh, it's um, been one I've been exploring a lot in India uh, and which, to my mind, uh, brings together an important perspective which has underlain my approach to the practice of the Dharma for many, many years under Bhante's inspiration um, and which I believe has underlain the... the uh, uh, creation of the institutions and um, the community that is our order and movement. And insofar as all of that is a bit up in the air and up for discussion, uh, I'd quite like to 
revisit those uh, very fundamental approaches which have inspired me, do inspire me now, and will inspire me until enlightenment is reached. Um, this is, is uh, the text is called The Eight Verses for Training the Mind. It's in the Lojong tradition of um, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which almost certainly goes back to the monastic universities of North India. Um, they came into Tibet, uh, these traditions came into it to Tibet with Atisha, who was lived in the 10th century, was an Indian uh, teacher who spent a lot of time in Indonesia with the famous uh, logician, so it's called, Dharma Kirti, and then went to Tibet, where he um, really re-established Buddhism after it had gone into decline, uh, having been initially founded by Padmasambhava, um, or established by Padmasambhava. So these traditions probably go back to the, to the, 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 the uh, Indo-Indian tradition. Uh, he was at Vikramashila, which is in Bihar, I think, what, the, what the, the tradition does is uh, bring together three lines of approach, which in Tibetan Buddhism are spoken of as view, uh, practice, and action. Uh, so the view that underlies this text is the straightforward view of uh, Shunyata. It's, it's, it's not a, a fancy view, so to speak, of Shunyata. It's the straightforward uh, um, understanding that all uh, things, all appearances, not to put too fine a point upon it, are devoid of inherent existence. Uh, they have no substantial reality um, and that they're all part of a, uh, an ever-changing flow of dependently arising conditions. Basic, standard uh, Buddhist doctrine. But that's the view, that everything is uh, impermanent, insubstantial, uh, devoid of uh, inherent existence. The practice is especially uh, the bodhicitta practice, in which you uh, uh, deliberately cultivate an attitude of uh, identification with all living beings, an appreciation that you're, you're intimately inter-involved with every other living creature. And especially you consider that all other creatures in the course of beginningless time uh, will have been your mother and father many, many times. Not an easy attitude for many, some of us at least to, to take up, but what it's getting at is that you, you recognize your complete identity with all other beings. Then having struck that identity, you uh, consciously breathe in all their pain and suffering and unskillfulness and transform it through the power of your own dedication and realization into pure white light, which you then breathe out into their hearts. So it's what's known as the practice of giving and taking. You uh, take all the sufferings of others and you give all your own uh, skillfulness, all your own uh, merit, all your own punya, uh, all your own spiritual realization, uh, or at least spiritual dedication 
you uh, give that to others and then take in their suffering and their unskillfulness. So it's a, it's a, a very refined and powerful extension, if you like, of the metta practice uh, with a, a very strong and deliberate attempt to sense your interconnectedness with all beings. Um, there's a lot more that can be said about that and I will try to say that over the course or a little bit more about it over the course of the next few days. So that, that's the, uh, the practice in the sense of the meditation practice that um, this, this uh, set of teachings brings, uh, is uh, connected with. The action is uh, to do with the, the moment-by-moment set of reflections and efforts you make in order to uh, uh, act in a way that's much more skillful, in a way that, it, it, uh, that um, gives expression to the view and the practice. Uh, so that you, through the action, you uh, put into effect your... Uh, your realization that all beings are ultimately uh, empty, and your your experience of interconnectedness, and your desire to take on the sufferings of others and to give them all happiness. So it's it's a combination. It's uh, the, the the union, the junction of all these three um, aspects: the, the view of shunyata, the practice of the bodhicitta, and the action of the consistent um, uh, application of reflections and actions that um, uh, give expression to the other two. The, 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 the main body of the text is concerned primarily with the action. And that's why I find this particular text uh, especially powerful. It's uh, offering a number of different um, sort of um, attitudes that you can take up and uh, put into effect in your daily interactions with other people. So that uh, moment by moment, whenever you're meeting somebody, you can be watching your own responses and applying one or other of these reflections in order to overcome your, um, your selfish clinging and uh, your, uh, your, your failure to realize the ultimate interconnectedness and uh, avoid nature of all things. So we'll be mainly dealing with the action aspect of it. But as the text goes on, I hope that we'll, we'll come to understand the relationship more to the view and to the practice. And we may, if uh, there's enough interest and enthusiasm for it, we may begin to look at the practice itself and uh, perhaps even do it. Because the form of each evening uh, will be that uh, I will talk for 40 minutes or so. Um, and at half past eight, for those that want it, we have our meditation downstairs, which you're welcome to join us for. Tonight, I think we'll just sit. Uh, but uh, if there's an interest in it, we could start to do the bodhicitta practice and just to try to sort of explore how that relates to the text itself. And to try and do this in four days. So we, we, uh, I've got, we've got mapped out tonight and tomorrow night 
and then Sunday night and Monday night. But knowing myself, it may not get done in that time. There are eight verses, should mean two a night, but let's see. So the, the text is by uh, the Kadampa Geshe Langratongpa, uh, who uh, is a kind of great uh, grand disciple of Atisha's. Um, uh, there is some things, there are some things known about him, but they're not particularly relevant here. Uh, but he is putting together the traditions that he gets from a teacher, uh, which bring together these two, these three really, uh, streams. It's spoken of particularly in terms of the views stream and the action stream, the practice being the, the, the embodiment of the two. And uh, I, I, there are many, many different versions of this, this uh, Lojong teaching. But this one is particularly uh, appealing to me because it's very spare. Uh, it's quite stripped down and it's quite doctrinally um, uh, um, it, 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 it's, it's economic, as it were, in terms of, uh, of doctrine. It doesn't have a lot of extraneous bits and pieces of metaphysics or belief hanging on to it. And uh, so one can immediately begin to relate to it and immediately begin to um, put it into action. Because that, don't forget, is what it's all about. It's about action, about uh, from now on trying in every situation to apply the perspective that the text is looking at. The, um, the Bodhicitta practice in the Torpe Dilam version uh, begins with the words, uh, in order to develop a new mind. Uh, so that's what the text is about. It's about developing a new mind. In other words, the bodhicitta. Uh, a mind that's uh, free from ego clinging, that is, uh, in, uh, fully recognizes the emptiness of all things and the interconnectedness of all things and is uh, um, powered only by compassion. So what you're doing in engaging, what we are doing in engaging with this, this text is uh, beginning to see a way in which we can develop a new mind, the mind of the bodhicitta, which is, of course, the transcendent mind. So we'll take it verse by verse. I'll try and do two verses tonight, but uh, there may be quite a lot to go into. It's very, very simple. But uh, I think the more you look at it and the more closely you look at it, the more uh, profound it becomes. So the first verse goes, May I always cherish all beings with the resolve to accomplish for them the highest good that is more precious than any wish-fulfilling jewel. So that's the fundamental approach. May I always cherish all beings uh, with the resolve to accomplish for them the highest good that is more precious than any wish-fulfilling jewel. So, may I always cherish all beings. Uh, well, there's, there's a rather a lot sort of riding on the term cherish itself. Um, and perhaps the best way of getting at what the word cherish is, is implying is to... Um, related, as it were, to its, its counterpart. This is cherishing all beings. Uh, 
the counterpart, or even contrary in some ways, is self-cherishing. Um, and so what the text is saying, that um, in the way that we usually cherish ourselves, we need to try to, we, we're aspiring to try to cherish others. So that, that's um, important to, to, well, kind of feel out, if you like, uh, the extent to which we all of us, quite spontaneously and even naturally, you could say, are um, fundamentally cherishing ourselves. Uh, according to uh, Abhidharma philosophy, particularly the Yogacara version of the Abhidharma philosophy, uh, we're... we're born into this life with fundamental um, attitudes uh, which we carry over from the past. Um, these are known as the Atma Kleshas, the four Atma Kleshas, or sometimes Mula Kleshas. Uh, kleshas in the sense of um, um, e emotional, come a cognitive knots, if you like, uh, which are afflictive, uh, they, they are disturbing insofar as in acting from them, we bring suffering to ourselves and, of course, others too. So at the, at the basis of our, of our whole structure of being are these four fundamental um, kleshas. They're not kleshas in the ordinary sense like anger or... Um, uh, craving or attachment or um, uh, something like that. They're much, much more fundamentally. You can't really see them. They're so much part of who you are, who we are, that uh, you don't sort of, um, you don't see them. Um, and they're, they're, they're considered to be uh, sahaja, which, which means inborn or innate or conate, I think, strictly speaking. So that... Um, as a consequence of the way in which we've acted and especially the way in which we've seen things in the past, we come into this life uh, with a predisposition to see them in that way again, to see them from the point of view of uh, ourselves being the, the most wonderful thing, ourselves being the central point of it all, uh, uh, ourselves as being uh, what we are most concerned about, and this is what's known as Atma Sneha. Um, sneha means attachment, cherishing. So Atma Sneha means self-cherishing. Uh, the other four, by the way, are Atma Mana, which we'll deal with a little bit in the next verse, which is to do with uh, our um, attitude of pride about ourselves. We'll see what that means later on. The other two are more cognitive. There's... Uh, Atma drishti, which is, means a view about self, an, an, an attitude, an understanding that there is a real independently existent self. And atma uh, moha, which means just not really understanding what the self is. Uh, so there's the sort of passive and the, and the active aspects of, of ignorance. Uh, atma moha being the um, passive aspect of of ignorance and uh, Atma Drishti being the active aspect where we produce views about who we are and uh, our place in things. Is that okay? You 
with me so far or too much material? So um, Atma Sneha is one of those four uh, Atma Kleshas, those four fundamental Sahaja uh, or Sahati Kleshas that we come into this life with that are kind of the foundation on which our whole personality is built, our whole uh, uh, being in this, in, this, uh, in this time is built. Um, so from a, uh, a, a, uh, from a Buddhist point of view, clearly we need to be attacking, so to speak, those four atmaklesias. We attack the views through reflection on shunyata. And we attack the, uh, uh, the cherishing and the pride through these sorts of practices, these sorts of actions, let's say, and the practice of giving and taking in the bodhicitta practice. So we come in with this fundamental attitude of uh, um, kind of feeling about ourselves that we are extremely important and desirable. Uh, what, what, what I find quite helpful about realizing that they're innate is that it's, it's, um, it's in a way not culpable. It's said at that level uh, that uh, the, the glaciers are um, a cognitive obscuration. In other words, they do hide the truth of things from you. They're a mistaken view about the way things really are. But they're morally neutral which is, I find, rather reassuring and gets away from a sort of almost an original sin notion. Uh, as if you, you've got these attitudes that you've just acquired from the past that are deeper than you can really see in yourself, as it were, uh, and that uh, are not necessarily going to lead you to act unskillfully because you can have those uh, artmaclacias and still be a good person and, and act fundamentally skillfully, even dwell in, uh, in uh, jhana uh, much or even most of the time. But still, there's that cognitive ob- obscuration underlying it. So the, the, the self-cherishing is not something kind of bad in, a, as I say, a, an original sin sense. It's not um, uh, some sort of moral blot that you're born with. It's a a cognitive knot with a an emotional um, consequence uh, which obscures the truth from you and leads to suffering your own and others. So what we're trying to do is to uh, change that so that not only do we cherish ourselves, because after all it says cherish all beings, and we are a being, um, but cherish others too in the same way, to have the same sense of uh, um, concern for and identification with others that we have for ourselves. I think it's very, very important to to recognise that, that the the text is not saying that we should just sacrifice ourselves in a uh, a perhaps even quite guilt-ridden way, this the ex-Catholics amongst us, we need to reassure ourselves of. Um, and just for, for the, from the point of view of uh, being able to put it into effect, we need to realise. Because we can't sort of um, 
do away with our own spontaneous uh, feeling of concern for our own well-being. But what we want to do is to expand that feeling of concern for our own well-being to include others, to include all others, ideally to the point at which uh, it's felt as strongly for others as it is for ourselves, because we no longer see ourselves in uh, in the same sort of separate, uh, isolated way. So in saying, may I cherish all beings, all of that is implied. Is It's changing our immediate and spontaneous uh, identification with ourselves and concern with ourselves, interest in ourselves, even love of ourselves, expanding that so that it includes uh, all others. And this is the, uh, the active dimension of insight into the uh, uh, empty nature of Atman, of, of self. Yeah, so far so good? Just, just to pause, anything that I've said that's not clear or needs amplification, because you know, I'm winding my way in, so I'm not sure I'm being as clear as I could be. Maybe it's pretty obvious. The, the main point I'm picking up is that the attitude that's required is a sort of extension of not a negation of, 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 uh, of the attitude that we naturally have to ourselves. Um, you could think of it in a number of different ways. In a way, you could say it's a negation because it's so different from the way in which we normally go about it. But it's not a negation in the sense that you, you know, hate yourself. You know, those chilling words, unless a man hate himself, he shall not uh, inherit life everlasting. Um, uh, that is not what Buddhism is saying. If it is, I am not a Buddhist, I assure you. Um, it's, um, it's saying that just as you love yourself, uh, you're, you're, you, you want to learn to love others. And, uh, and you take even, in a way, your love for yourself as the model for the love that you want to have for others. That's, in a way, what, what the text is saying. Um, whether when that's taken place, what you're left with is precisely an extension of your love for yourself is, is debatable. But that at least is a way of, uh, of approaching it, that, that probably, probably a better way of approaching it than thinking in terms of negating yourself and uh, cutting yourself off, especially from the culture that some of us come from. The Mula Klesias, the Atma Klesias. Well, let's start with the cognitive side. There's Atma Moha, which is uh, ignorance about self. Uh, Atma Drishti, which is views about self. Uh, Well, Atma Moha is more like um, kind of blindness. You don't know who you are or what you are, as it were. Uh, Atma Drishti is that you think you do know. Uh, so, as I say, that the, the, the passive and active aspects of ignorance. It would be all right if we just didn't know and knew that we didn't know. But we, 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 we don't know, and we don't know that we don't know. In fact, we think we do know. So we've got all sorts of ideas about what it is to be a self. And fundamentally, we believe that we are uh, an independent, uh, self-existent uh, self interacting with 
an independent, self-existent world. Uh, so that's the, the, the cognitive side. The affective side uh, is atma um, sneha, uh, which means, um, well, in, in even modern Indian languages, it means affection or, or even just love, uh, even romantic love it can mean. Um, but, but, but cherishing is, is, I think, a really good translation because uh, uh, it, it's got very positive connotations as well. Uh, and atmamana, which means pride in self. Um, so you're... you're uh, attitude of having identified yourself and, and caring deeply about yourself, of comparison of yourself with others. Uh, the, the fundamental position is that um, we all believe that we are really the, the most important um, person and that everything revolves around, around us. At this level, that's what it really means. It means uh, considering that you are uniquely important. And we all do it. And in a way, the, the, uh, this approach of thinking of them as innate um, relieves one of the feeling that it's a, it's a terrible sort of guilty secret. Um, uh, something we all do quite naturally and spontaneously. And that if we, if we uh, use it correctly, rightly, can be the basis for our going beyond it. In a way, what we're doing in the Metabhavna is first of all identifying and uh, accepting our atma sneha. You could almost say that the first stage of the, uh, of the metabhavna is taking your natural love of yourself and beginning to make it more rational, well, more, um, uh, more effective by recognizing your real interests, your, your, your real, uh, where real benefit lies for you. But you're taking something that's quite natural and spontaneous. You're not trying to force something on yourself or force something out of yourself. And uh, then you're beginning to learn to extend that to others uh, so that you uh, include them more and more in, in, in your field of, of concern. So, again, I, I think this is very, very important to, to recognize in any discussion of the need for uh, self-transcendence and of learning to cherish others, that you're doing that by taking your natural self-love and uh, raising it up, making it more subtle, more uh, effective, more reasonable, uh, directing it in a way that's more truly in your interests and benefit. Uh, and I, I think that uh, a quite important sort of... Um, Thing for us all to do in trying to practice uh, spiritually is to keep in touch with that basic self-love and not to allow ourselves to fall into, especially us with a Christian background, to fall into the idea that suppressing ourselves or doing away with ourselves in, in some sort of sense uh, is transcending ourselves. Um, it's just um, a kind of perverted self-love. Even self-hatred is a form of self-love. You think you're uniquely important enough to hate, if you see what I mean. I mean, after all, why hate yourself if you don't think you're important? Like that famous line in Casablanca, isn't it, where um, the, the, the little creep comes up to Johnny and says, um, you hate me, Johnny, don't you? No, you despise me, Johnny, don't you? And uh, Johnny says, 
no, I don't despise you. If I thought about you, I might. Um, <laughs> we, we, uh, even our bad feelings about us, ourselves are based upon our real strong feeling about ourselves, if you see what I mean. And again, that's quite a helpful thing in, in teaching and talking about Metabhavna, that there's nobody who does not primarily love themselves, even those who appear to hate themselves. Um, you wouldn't bother if you didn't love yourself. Anyway, you, you see why I'm making a little bit of this, that you take the words, may I always cherish all beings, and you can very easily start to think in terms of self-negation in what I consider to be a very unhealthy sense. And really, in a way, I'd say that cherishing all beings is a completion of self-cherishing and uh, depends, first of all, on, on, a, on a healthy self-appreciation and a healthy uh, self-love. Um, but it does go beyond it. And uh, that is what the, the burden of the text is. That's what the text is trying to uh, educate us in and give us tools for doing. And, yes, it does seem to me that the way in which you cherish all beings lies through cherishing yourself. And uh, because, in the first place, you cherish yourself, uh, you begin to be able to, to cherish others. Cherish, I think, is a very beautiful word. It um, comes from, uh, presumably, from via French, from a, a Latin, a Latin root to care. Uh, and um, uh, yes, it it, 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 it it suggests a very sort of tender and uh, um, particular uh, help, not not a sort of a vague or generalised love for others or, um, you know, benefit of others. It, it, it means really looking after them, uh, paying attention to their specific needs. Um, and, and that, I think, is also one, perhaps a danger of the language of, of, of the bodhicitta practice and, and uh, discourse generally, that it can seem so general that you lose the, the particularity in small acts of kindness and attention to others. I read something recently that, that suggested when you're doing the bodhicitta practice and you're, you're doing the exchange of, um, you know, the, the giving and taking of um, uh, unskillfulness from them and uh, your own uh, happiness and benefit, um, you start with particular people. Don't just sort of have a, a vague image of golem-like blobs sort of out there. Um, but you know, think of particular people who are suffering and whose suffering touches you and uh, start with that. And through that, you, you can include more and more people. You can, you can reach out to more and more people. So uh, when we're talking about cherishing all beings, what that means is cherishing those who are immediately in front of you. And uh, so that means that this practice is offering us, this text is offering us a daily practice, um, minute by minute. So we cherish all beings with the resolve to accomplish for them the highest good uh, that is more precious than any wish-fulfilling jewel. Um, well, I, th I find this very interesting, the idea of a wish-fulfilling jewel. Um, it, it immediately connects you with the fact that people are wanting creatures that all those beings that you're cherishing 
They, they want things. They wish for things. And uh, what, of course, they all wish for is their own happiness and benefit. And this is a, a very important aspect of the whole bodhicitta practice and discourse, that you recognize that all beings seek, like you do, their own benefit. Even the evil that people do, even the monstrous acts that people perform, are done because people believe they will give them uh, the greatest benefit. They will bring about uh, the benefits uh, that, that, that they desire. For, for some reason recently, the, these um, acts of terror going on in, in, in Iraq have been getting through to me. You know, the, the unbelievable senselessness of killing you know, 200 people who you don't know. You don't know what they think or what they believe, but just you know, setting off a bomb to kill people at random. Uh, it, it's, it's really hard to understand how people can do that. But they're doing it because they believe they will, will bring about what they value most highly. They believe that it's, it's, it's the best thing that they can do. And this is what the, 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 um, the, this bodhicitta practice is really sort of uh, inviting us to attend to. The fact that nobody ever does anything because they um, believe it will do them harm. Even if they believe it will do them harm, they think that harm is the best thing that could happen to them, if you see what I mean. That everybody does things because they believe that they will bring them the best. And uh, everybody's seeking their own best interests, their highest value. Um, which, for me, of course, connects up for those who've been looking at NVC, with the NVC idea of needs. Nobody does anything uh, except as in fulfilment of, of deep universal needs. That's where this practice connects up, I think, with NVC. By the way, we may return to that theme. But yeah, the wish-fulfilling gem immediately pay, brings us to attend to the fact that everybody's out for their own benefit and happiness. Everybody's uh, uh, acting all the time because they think that that's going to fulfill them. That's going to, to, to get them what they value most highly. And um, I think immediately if you can, if you can start to attend to the, the world around you and the people around you in that sort of way, your, the, your attitude begins to change. If you can immediately begin to sense that behind the, the little acts of unskillfulness that, you know, people perform, and uh, even the big acts of unskillfulness, the gross and almost incomprehensible acts of unskillfulness, lies um, uh, their belief that this will fulfill, this will bring them their greatest fulfillment. Uh, you begin to already begin to be able to move into cherishing them. So I take this idea of wish fulfilling as bringing us into the whole uh, realm of people as, as wish-fulfilling uh, creatures. They're trying to fulfill their wishes. And then um, when you think about the wish-fulfilling gem, and it's a fascinating sort of symbol, isn't it, which you find in all cultures. Uh, I remember fairy stories um, where you know, people are given three wishes. And in the fairy stories, they always waste the wishes, don't they? Uh, you know, I remember though I was trying to think of one. The only one I could think of was one where an old couple helper. Uh, um, a fairy. It's probably an Irish story. And uh, 
the fairy grants them three wishes. So uh, the man um, sits down and uh, he says, I'd like a really big sausage. (laughs) And so on his plate appears an enormous sausage. And the wife says, you silly fool, you've wasted a, 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 a wish. I wish that sausage was on the end of your nose. So immediately that's where the sausage is. And uh, then, of course, what can they do But with a third wish, but get it off the end of his nose? So wish is gone. And there are many, many stories like that. Um, and what, what that really sort of teaches us and tells us is that um, uh, we don't know our own interests. Uh, if, if we had the power to uh, get what, what we wished for, we wouldn't, what we wished for would not give us fulfillment. Uh, we wish for things, um, and they maybe temporarily satisfy us, but they always have a sting in their tail. The sausage always goes on the end of the nose. Uh, so those, those sort of fairy stories that, uh, and, and stories where people find the wish-fulfilling gem are all about that, aren't they? The, the fact that we're not in control of our... Uh, we don't know what our best interests are. We don't know what our highest interests are. This is what um, uh, Tarkovsky's film Stalker is about. Um, you know, they, they go into the, the zone, and in the zone there's the room. And if you go into the room, all your wishes are fulfilled. But you remember the porcupine uh, went into the, into the room, and uh, he ended up extremely wealthy. What he'd gone in there to do was to ask for his brother's resurrection. But his own deepest desires were what the, the, the room fulfilled. So we're all the time trying to fulfill our own desires. We're wish-fulfilling creatures, so to speak. But uh, uh, we don't know where our highest interests lie. And um, uh, so this, this is what's connoted here. Our resolve is to accomplish for beings the highest good that is more precious than any wish-fulfilling jewel. Um, We want to accomplish for people their real best interests, their real higher interests, not just what they might think they want or say they want. Of course, you know, some of what they want is is not unskillful and maybe even necessary to them. Uh, But uh, most people, you know, if they were given a wish-fulfilling jewel, would not be able to use it uh, satisfactorily or well. So... um, This implies then, of course, that the cherishing of living beings requires us to understand for ourselves what the deepest interests of beings are, including ourselves, and to know how to to fulfill them. So uh, it requires us to look at beings in a a quite new and different way, Uh, to look at beings, ourselves included, as self-interested, seeking our own best interests, but not really knowing what those wishes or those interests are. In the, in the text, it says something like, beings seek happiness, uh, but they don't know where happiness lies. What a pity. Of course, what a pity is a vast understatement. It's what a, a supreme tragedy. That's what tragedy is. It's uh, where um, uh, we seek great things, but we don't understand sufficiently clearly uh, what greatness is, and we uh, 
we, in seeking, in even achieving a degree of greatness, we also achieve other things that we didn't expect or want. So when we say, may I cherish, may I always cherish all beings with the resolve to accomplish for them the highest good that is more precious than any wish-fulfilling jewel, this is all that's implied. May we uh, care for others in the same ways we care for ourselves, but not just caring for us, uh, uh, others and ourselves uh, as um, you know, gratification-seeking beings, but as beings who uh, have uh, a, a high destiny and whose highest interests lie ultimately in a spiritual realization uh, and whose deepest needs and strongest desires only find satisfactory fulfillment in that realization. Uh, this is what the text implies. And when we're doing the practice, we, we, we visualize all beings around us and we try to create some identification with them, uh, reflecting that they're like us, seeking happiness. Uh, that's what they want. Um, they're no different from us. Even, even the harmful things they do to us are done because they believe that's in their best interests. Um, and if we, if we can sort of identify with others in that way, recognizing they're like us, uh, just trying to find fulfillment, uh, well, we can cross that barrier. We can begin to, to cherish. If we can look around and see others in that way, we can begin to include them in our cherishing. But what uh, we need to add to that is the depth of, of recognition that what they're striving for is best fulfilled in enlightenment. Uh, that's the only fulfillment for it. Short of enlightenment, uh, there's going to be roughs with the smooth, if you like. There's going to be uh, always negative consequences flowing on from the positive effects, even if it's only binding ourselves further into the, the, the system of samsara. Samsara is our seeking our happiness without understanding where our happiness really lies. That, if you like, is what samsara is. So we're continuously trying to, to benefit ourselves, but not really understanding where our benefit lies. And uh, what we're trying to do in, the, in, in, in uh, this bodhicitta approach is uh, understand better our own highest interest and the highest interests of others and see others as wish-seeking or fulfillment-seeking beings who just don't know where fulfillment lies, as we don't know where fulfillment lies. Uh, we've perhaps got the benefit of uh, contact with the Dharma and maybe some vision uh, and on that basis we can try to help others we go for refuge to the three jewels and we can try in going for refuge to, th to the three jewels to, to, to lead others on that path so when we say may I always cherish all beings um, with the resolve to accomplish for them the highest good that is more precious than any wish fulfilling jewel this is what we've got in mind, this desire to uh, extend our uh, cherishing of ourselves to others and to uh, see others and ourselves as seeking our highest happiness, seeking happiness, uh, but wishing for us and, and others the highest happiness where real fulfillment lies.
And uh, that's all we've got time for tonight. I thought I wouldn't do very much, but anyway, it's uh, a good start, I think. Yes, I hadn't intended to promote discussion here, as it were. I just wanted to explore the text and... uh, Uh, No doubt discussion can take place elsewhere. But if you'd like to, uh, in ten minutes' time, uh, we're going to meditate. Some of us are going to meditate downstairs, and you're welcome to join us. You're welcome not to if you want to, too. Okay, and tomorrow night, same time, next verse. We hope you enjoyed the talk. Please come and help us keep this free at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash community. And thank you.